That's the last thing I tell young folks is like, you don't have to be the brightest person because I certainly wasn't. I didn't have the highest test scores. I wasn't the most polished person, but at the end of the day, I wanted it more badly than anybody else. Yeah. And I was not going to lose. What's up everybody. And welcome back to Demo Day, the podcast for venture capitalists, founders, and anybody interested in learning more about the top accelerator, incubator, and VC programs from around the world. I'm Sean Goldfaden, CEO of Coefficient Labs and the host of the Demo Day podcast. On today's show, we'll be interviewing Eva Ho, general partner of Fika Ventures. Eva has roots all around the world. She was born in China, raised in Africa, grew up in Massachusetts, and eventually settled right here in Los Angeles. After being awarded a full scholarship to Harvard University, Eva received her BA in biology. She then went on to Cornell University for her MBA. And before becoming a venture capitalist, Eva's impressive career spanned from director of marketing at Applied Semantics, senior product marketing manager at Google, VP of marketing and operations at Factual, and founder of Navigating Cancer. In 2013, Eva became a general partner at Sousa Ventures, and then in 2016, became a partner at Fika Ventures, a boutique seed fund that invests in solving systemic problems with data, automation, and AI-enabled technologies. Notable companies invested by Fika include Hey Rene, Chatdesk, First Resonance, and many, many more. Eva possesses a strong passion for helping the world and especially the LA community, which is not only evident in Fika's investments, but also in her nonprofit work at Whole Child LA, Common Crawl, All Rays, and the California Community Foundation. On today's show, we'll be discussing the core principles of a high quality investment, the key foundation to a valuable VC partnership, and the importance of investing in the mainstream and not the 1%. Without further ado, let's get into Demo Day. Eva, thank you so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. It's been a while in the making, but yes. I'm so excited to be here with you. Yeah, it has been a while. It's been years since before COVID, but now we are starting to come back in person and uh, it's great to have you. So. I wanted to start. Um, I wanted to start the podcast by asking you a question around, you know, why you still love what you do. I I know that between Susa and between Fika, you've been investing now for almost ten years. Ten years in any industry is a long time, and I was just curious, what is it about this that keeps you like alive and you know really pumped up about what you do? It's honestly such a privilege to get to do what I do every day. Uh, I think the things that inspire me most and probably is very core to my personality is I just love learning. I love being around really smart people. I love being around people who are compelled to solve interesting, often complex things. Um, and this job allows me to do that every day. Uh, and sometimes I pinch myself a bit that I get paid to do this. Um, but it's been a real gift the last 10 years. I'm not going to lie, I do miss operating a bit because mm -hmm. I was doing that for a while prior to this with the LA company called Factual that many of you guys know. Gil was the founder of that company, but uh, I do miss that side a bit. So I think there are times I kind of nostalgic about that part of my life, but uh, I, I can't ask for a better job. You know, I'm definitely excited to learn more about the operating side of your career and how you got there. Maybe we could start by um, kind of going back into the early days because I yeah. know you did undergrad and even your MBA on the East Coast. But um, 
my like memories reading that like LA has been always like a key part of your story. And so where did you grow up and you know, what was sort of like early life like for you? What were you like as a kid? What'd you like doing? Thank you for asking that, Sean. Um, it's been a really, really weird journey. Uh, I think, uh, Going back, I mean, I grew up in, um, I was born in China. I grew up in Mozambique, Africa. I uh, had not gone to school before immigrating to the U.S. when I was eight. Uh, we were refugees from a civil war. Um, and that shapes a lot of sort of what I prioritize today, honestly, when I think back um, in looking at that story arc. Um, in Boston, I, you know, our families grew up from a really uh, low socioeconomic background, food stamps, housing projects. Um, both my parents are second grade educated. Wow. Um, so they didn't even graduate from uh, grade school, honestly. Um, and they didn't speak any English. Um, so, you know, I grew up in a world where my family in the early days really relied on the kids to help them navigate life, um, navigate be coming to the U.S. Um, we ran a small business, a Chinese restaurant, and working through that since I was 11. Now, I just want to make sure I'm yeah. under, is this in China or in once you moved to the U.S., they ran the restaurant? Oh, sorry, Sean. So uh, we ran a restaurant in Boston, Massachusetts after we immigrated to the U.S. I'm really curious, like, what was that experience like for you in China? Do you remember growing up there or were you too young? And um, what was sort of your take on the worlds that you were in, because obviously we're sitting here in Santa Monica. It's beautiful and, you know, nice and everything is great. What was it like in those early days? Could you, did you tell that like, oh, wow, I'm in a tough position or was it something that only later in life you were able to recognize like where your roots came from? So I was born in China, but I actually grew up in Mozambique, Africa. So most of my childhood was spent um, in a small war-torn country um, that sits on the equator Super hot, um, deserty. Uh, I lived on a farm. Those are the memories that are very wow. uh, acute. Um, I actually went back recently after my father passed. Uh, my father grew up there all his life. Um, he's Chinese, but he grew up there all his life. And, um, you know, as a kid, we kind of roamed around. Again, I didn't get to go to school. We lived on this farm. Um, we were There was only two Chinese families in the entire town. Um, and you know, full circle, uh, just for l folks listening, I haven't told people many, told many people about this, but I went back recently after my father passed, um, to just discover sort of some of my roots. And I discover I have a brother who's half black who lives wow. in Mozambique now, who's older than me, my older brother. And it's been really touching, um, having that discovery because it comes full circle in terms of just, um, my heritage and why I'm so confused <laughs> sometimes as an adult, um, but yeah, it's been strange because I think when we moved to um, Boston, uh, it was the first winter we've ever had, inner city, completely different. And we had $99 as a family of six, um, no exaggeration. So I think, you know, thinking back, those memories continue to shape sort of oh my gosh, who I yeah. am and, um, and yeah, the things I focus on today. Um, one acute memory I have that, um, you know, I think most of us have a handful of memories that allow us to wake up every day and decide what we want to do and motivates us. And there's one memory um, where I grew up in Boston housing projects, but I got to go to Harvard. I was very privileged to get to go there on a scholarship. Um, but my dad was still working at this small Chinese restaurant we had in Fenway Park. And he would come bring me food because, um, you know, back then I was working, doing multiple jobs. While I was at Harvard to try to pay for education. And I often would miss the meals at college. Um, so my dad would come to Johnston Gate to deliver me food and his greasy yellow beige jacket, the only jacket he had. 
And I was actually ashamed, yeah, uh, embarrassed I, by him because, you know, here I am as a this fancy campus um, living underneath the Prince of Denmark. Uh, and I was so t- like afraid that somebody was going to see us together and that my dad was smelling funny. Um, he didn't speak any English and he was carrying these little bags of food. Um, you know, now looking back many years later, um, I realize what they've all, my parents have done for me to yeah. get me to where I am today. And I'm embarrassed to have been embarrassed, but that memory definitely sticks with me in terms of working on some of the projects I work on today. When you were growing up, was it your parents? Because I know you said that they weren't educated past, you know, elementary school, really. Like, were they driving you saying like, Eva, like you have to get educated, you have to go into this program? Or was there something kind of deep inside, which is like, you were telling yourself, I need to go on a journey and I need to uh, find that education. Where did the inspiration, obviously Harvard is, Harvard, it's the top of what many people aspire to be. Was there an inner voice that was driving you or was it really family oriented around like kind of trying to change the history that they had grown up in? It's a combination, Sean. So I think now that I'm able to reflect a bit more, uh, it was a lot of their teachings and and some of it was just watching because my parents were struggling. We were all struggling. The entire family worked since we were like, since we arrived in Boston, all of us were carrying 40 hour jobs. And I know looking at that life, um, both my parents and myself, I wanted something better. Mm. Um, and I wanted something better for them because it was such a struggle growing up. And, you know, they said, well, the only thing you can do, Eva, is just get educated, work as hard as you can, and whatever you choose, just do your very best. Like, be excellent in whatever you do. And that simple advice from parents who didn't come from a tradi- traditional background um, has helped me remind my remind me to today why I work still 70, 80 hours a week yeah. doing the things that I love to do. Um, but yeah, it's that lesson that stuck with me and I think has allowed me to sort of carve this path. From my recollection, you went in for biology, right? It wasn't specific to business or that came later. Um, was that always the plan? Did you want to be a doctor someday or how did you navigate the Harvard, you know, ecosystem? I did want to be a doctor. So great observation there. Um, you know, that whole period was so hard that it was a blur mm. uh, when, you know, we were still living in the housing projects. And um, I remember I wanted to go to Wellesley just because I was really shy growing up. I don't know, the Wellesley campus, when I did the one tour there, the one tour that I got to do, it just felt like a smaller community, mm-hmm. all women. Um, and I felt like, yeah, maybe here I'll start to find a vo- my voice and, you know, maybe I'll do okay. Um but when I got into Harvard, I actually cried because my parents didn't allow me to go to Wellesley. So they were just kind of like, nah, you know, you're going to go here. Um, it's the school that, you know, is recognized nationally. It's the school their family in China recognizes. And in some ways, they took that choice away from me. Um, mm. But they were smart, you know, because I'm glad I chose that school. And my time at Harvard was um, hard in terms of it just because I was working so much that I couldn't even sort of have a sense of where I was really at yeah, and really absorb the immensity of being able to be there with all these incredible people. I was like sh- just trying to survive. Survive, yeah. Um, and, and my parents, actually, the restaurant burned down while I was a sophomore and they became unemployed. At that point, I didn't know they were going to be in an unemployed for the rest of their life. So, um, but at that point, I think my priorities started to change. Um, even though I wanted to go to med school, um, I couldn't pursue that path for economic reasons um, and ended up taking the first job that was offered to me uh, out of college. It was back then a high paying job at $32,000 a year. Um, And, you know, 
luckily it all worked out. Um, but it certainly, you know, back then in my sort of early 20s, I felt like a lot of choices were taken away from yeah. me. Um, and I'm very grateful today that, you know, it ended up, you know, it, I'm, I'm very lucky to be where I am. But it's, it's funny, looking back, For I was sure. kind of like a bitter kid, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because um, I felt like I had all these responsibilities at a very young age. Um, but those responsibilities, I think, are the things that gave me sort of the strength and the will to, you know, do some of the fun things I get to do today. For sure. I don't, while you were talking, I was just remembering that speech from Steve Jobs about how, like, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. And, you know, at the time, I could imagine it was so overwhelming between school and like your parents and the financial, like to think that that would turn into some amazing positive in the future. It's so hard, but looking back, like obviously um, not only is that grit that you've built in yourself, but you're able to like see that in adversity of the founders you invest in. And I'm sure that like helps you understand and be empathetic towards all different walks of life um, that maybe others may not have ever experienced that before. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct, Sean. And today in LA, we actually, Fika, myself, we work a lot with underserved stu uh, students that don't come from traditional backgrounds. And it continues to inspire me, sort of, I thought my life was hard, but there are a lot of folks going through it right now who are coming from homeless situations, no parents, um, you know, drug-infused environments, yeah. yet they have the will to succeed and to do better. Um, and yeah, I'm, when I work with these kids, it, it reminds me a bit of myself, mm -hmm. but in them, I see just such a bright future for so many folks that will be given sort of second and third chances. Yeah. Wow. Now, when you were, um, you know, essentially like out of Harvard and, you know, as you mentioned, you had to jump right into the working world and start to like help your family and start to take care of responsibilities. When did you start like noodling on this idea of an MBA program? Like when did the concept of like stopping this trajectory and starting to go either back to school or, you know, kind of embark in business? When did that start to come? Was there any story in particular that you remember that sort of got you moving in that direction? Yeah, I think when I took that first job, it was a, I would say market research analytical job. Um, it was my first exposure to the business world, you know, having to wear different clothes. And it was honestly somewhat terrifying for someone who <laughs> didn't have a suit in these things and never having really interacted with that type of sort of professional. Um, and in that, I recognized all the things I did not know um, that I needed to get, all the skills that I was missing, like accounting and these various things. And I applied to business school not thinking too hard, honestly, Sean. I was kind of like, well, if I get in, it'd be great. If I don't, I don't. And I was looking for a place that would give me a scholarship, which back then was very rare. Yeah, Cornell was the one that gave me a scholarship. So again, from economics perspective, like, thank God for them. Like they allow me to go to school almost basically for free. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really set me up. Um, I, I can't say today, a lot of people ask whether they should get their MBA. It's very different today than I would say 20 years ago. We didn't have totally. YouTube. We didn't have all these things to learn. Today, I don't think an MBA is actually necessary. Um but back then, there was a motivation to pick up a lot of these sort of polishing, networking skills that I just didn't have. And now, once you got out of your MBA program, that was your first, quote unquote, like stint in consulting and like starting to get more into business strategy. Did you have to change your personality type for moving into that world? Because I remember you saying you were very shy, very introverted, yet no one, I don't think watching this would know that you're shy and introverted. You're, you know, soft-spoken perhaps, but... Um, did you have to change your, you know, personality in order to blend into this new world of consulting? And what was that kind of transition leaving a school environment and starting to like work amongst a group like for you? 
I think I say this just because I work with so many folks who are going through this now. There's something unique about folks um, that, A, are the first-time college goers. So that alone is a very different mm. experience. And a lot of colleges now are, including Harvard, are thinking of new ways to immerse students of this type because we need different things like socialization. We need uh, a lot of work, wraparound services that other kids don't, that have parents who've gone to college. Um you know, do not need as much. Um, and to really feel a sense of belonging there and to really get out of it what you need and what you should get out of something like college. Yeah. A first time college go is very, very different. So you take that and you move it into the employment world. And it's like, oh, the first time you're in an, a professional <laughs> right? consulting. And it sounds not, it sounds like, why is that so hard? Um, I definitely had the feeling of not belonging. Imposter. Like, totally. Like, yeah. Totally, Sean, you know, and, you know, I'm four foot 10. So I walk into these environments where, you know, the company I joined was a uh, ex McKinsey sort of spinoff. Um, and all those folks felt tall and blonde and they had the perfect suit. I had one suit and um, from Filing's Basement. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Like, <laughs> how is this all going to work? You know, I didn't know how to walk in heels. And so I think, when I work with young folks today, I realize there's all these things that's going through their heads. The nuances, that, yeah. Yeah, that somebody that grew up in a different family where they're exposed, where their parents are lawyers or whatnot, it's just different, right? Because you have that exposure. Um, for me, it was all brand new and it was quite scary. I think what I did learn about it, and I'm not sure it's the right lesson, um, was I wasn't very happy. I, mm. I was able to do a decent job, um, but my reviews were always like, oh, you're super great. Like analytically, you could you know, crystallize, synthesize, you could do all this stuff, like you get it. Um, but uh, you're just very shy and you just couldn't, I couldn't present in front of people. I was like terrified every time I had to speak in front of any of my clients. So I knew I just wasn't going to be very good at it. And to this day, I don't think I would be very good at it. Um, so I had to make a choice. And I think that's why the sort of almost accidental path into tech allowed me to be more of myself. Because I don't think I would have been a very successful consultant, honestly, in the long term. So, And now, what was the tech industry like back then? Because I know, like, you know, you started to get involved towards the late 90s. You had a, a brief stint at Stamps.com, which yeah. is just, you know, you've got it's to crazy, call it. crazy, it? Right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's a lot of, like, meat behind this is Stamps.com, but was – what was the environment like there? I know it was only for a year or so, but was it part of this dot-com, you know, uh, bubble or was it just, uh, you know, wrong fit, didn't end up being a big part of the story? So I have, I when I moved to LA, I had zero background in tech. I didn't even really, I didn't own a computer through college. Remember, this is 94. So right. some kids had computers. I used the Science Center. Um, I, I couldn't afford a computer. Uh, but it was the sort of the renaissance, right? At that point, it was like the Yahoo's and the Mosaics and like all these things were happening at that time. Um, it was being created in the 94, yep. 95 mm -hmm. era. Um, but I didn't know. I, I was like totally oblivious to all these you know, internet-y things that were happening. So when I came out to LA and, you know, I was interviewing for a handful of jobs like snaps.com, I was like, oh, he posted. Yes, <laughs> you know, I guess I could do that, you know? And it was, again, it would, it paid reasonably well. Um, the team was, the team was, you know, fairly strong team and I joined, but then, you know, we had the crash. Right. So it IPO'd, I think it was like 200 plus dollars and it just dropped overnight I had no freaking idea what was going on, Sean. I had no idea. I, I didn't understand the stock market. My parents have never 
traded one share of stocks. I, I didn't even know what stocks really are or were. Um, so yeah, it was all very new. Um, so I'm glad I learned that lesson early uh, and got into applied semantics, which was a much more fruitful ride. I have this recollection. Applied semantics, which I think they were acquired by Google, weren't they like the earliest version of AdWords and AdSense and like it really became a big part of their advertising product or was it totally different from that? Wow, you really have done your research. It's kind of a, you're, <laughs> you're quite amazing. Um, yeah, so it it is, uh, Plasmatics was some of the foundational blocks for AdSense. Um, yes. AdSense was actually the name that Plasmatics came up with that Google ended up adopting. Uh, luckily, they had AdWords and sort of the branding made sense, but a lot of folks think AdSense was an, a brand that Google came up with, but it was actually the fact, uh, the Plasmatics team in Los Angeles that came up with that. Um, yeah, we were a search engine that did you know, it's contextual advertising. Uh, we were lucky to be bought by Google in 03. How big was the company when you first joined them? Uh, I think we were 11 people. 11? Yeah. For context, you know, Coefficient Labs, we just hit our 16 teammate mark. And so at 11, it's a tight knit, you know, group here. Did you know going to work in the morning that like this is going to be something amazing? And at what point did you realize that like Google or some company may acquire you? Was it you know, a long road to get there? Or did you know from the very beginning that it was going to be a special ride? I didn't know anything. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I know that sounds strange, but uh, the founders were two Caltech guys, um, Gil and Adam. And all I knew was I liked them. Um, the people there were smart, different, interesting. We could come into the office with shorts. We had fun on the weekends. It's completely the opposite of my other jobs and consulting others. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, this is a fun environment, and I love these people. Um, the product was almost like a side thing. It's like we're trying all these different things. And, I mean, the company was, like, near death, like, multiple times because we were this little tech company in L.A. that nobody paid attention to. Yeah. We couldn't get investor interest. I mean, we just weren't known in, it, known in any way. We're all very young. Um, but I think as we started to get more customer traction and we got, I mean, the Google thing happened actually quite rapidly mm. back then, you know, they were a pre IPO company that, you know, Larry and Sergey could just make the decision. It wasn't a long drawn out process. Um, and yeah, it was a surprise and a lovely surprise. Um, cause I think Google was really, we were 50 people when we were sold, it just became an extension and we just hopped onto this next sort of amazing little ride. And, um, yeah, so I chose, and today I think when people ask, like, what should I optimize for when I'm looking for my first, second, third job? And I said, people. You know, the friends I've made at Apply Semantics Gill and all those folks um, remain some of my best friends to today, my mentors. So, you know, I was very lucky I chose well back then. You spent years then working with Google and YouTube after and kind of continued on. Um, in your opinion, what makes that organization so special? You know, why... Over the last 15, 20 years, they maintain being, you know, just at the forefront of innovation, the forefront of hiring the best talent. What is it about that organization that you then later kind of took with you as you became an executive at other companies? I think the core principle of Google is building a delightful user experience. They always come back to that, whatever they're working on, whether it's email, whether it's video, they came back to that simple premise of build something simple something elegant, something useful. I mean, Google was a box, right? I mean, its whole page literally. Was a, it was literally was a little box, uh, search box. Um, and I think that simplicity 
is I think a lot of things that, you know, when I look at sort of products and founders today, I was like driving towards product simplicity with high value mm. um, is really the crux of, you know, the foundation of something amazing. And of course, Google has layer, layer on many, many other giant sort of product suites on top of that with Google Cloud, et cetera. But to this day, I kind of go back to that central principle of just building something that's delightful for the user. That's probably the, the biggest lesson they taught me. Wow. Yeah. Now, before jumping into your next, you know, kind of big career move at Factual, um, I did learn a bit more about, you know, the work you've done around navigating cancer and some of your nonprofit and, you know, your founder work. Was there a story behind, like, something in particular that made you want to get more involved in that space? And um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about the Navigating Cancer group, which I believe now is up in, in Seattle. Um, what was that like for you starting? Why did you start it to begin with? After I left Google, um, I think there a handful of people approached me for help in business planning, starting something. And I was so grateful because I was like, oh my gosh, like I just had the six amazing, six amazing years at this wonderful startup that was Google. Um, and I just wanted to work with some folks and give back. Um, that was a simple premise. And so one of the people that came to me was a physician from UCLA, um, and he was working with a patient whose son had cancer, mm. um, he had brain tumor, 10, year, 10 years old. And he, the dad, was an executive at Merrill Lynch, one of the five faces on the website. Um, and when we met, he said, Eva, I have infinite resources. I have an infinite network. But I'm completely terrified because my son has a brain tumor, and I'm getting two different um, protocols or two different options of what I can do. I could have surgery. I could do this. And he's like, I don't know what to do. Um, and at that point, he's like, I can't imagine someone else who doesn't have resources, who doesn't have the network. Um, what would they do? And so navigating cancer was built on that premise of um, once you're diagnosed with a cancer, especially a rare one, how do you decide on what the care pathway should be. So I wasn't personally, I'm lucky that I can't say I have somebody in the first degree that has had cancer, mm -hmm. a second degree folks in the family. Um, but that story really stuck with me um, and providing people access to the right information so that they can make these life saving, life changing decisions. Um, once I got into it, though, I realized healthcare is really crazy hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure uh, and sort of the innocent pure mission of helping folks find the right doctors and right right medications turned out to be actually extremely hard um, given a lot of the obstacles and friction in healthcare. Um, so the company was handed over to a CEO that knew healthcare a lot better and she took it from there, moved it to Seattle. And um, I think it's remains, it's still doing great things, but yeah. it's been a, I would say a hard, a bit of a hard journey for them. I would imagine um, now going out of that sector and then back into factual, right? And so um, I know that on, uh, LinkedIn, it says VP of marketing and ops, but you were there in the earliest days, one of the founding execs. Was yeah. there a story behind, you know, why you wanted to get involved with that team? Was it something that was pulling at you or did it kind of by happenstance, you know, be just serendipitously fall in front of you? So Factual, the the guy who came up with the whole idea for Factual is Gil. So the same person from Applied Semantics. Ah. Um, yeah. So that's the connection. Okay. And we were having coffee or something went, or he asked me to come to the office one time and he's like I've been working on this thing he was at Google for many years and then he left and he was incubating something and of course I had to go find out what it was <laughs> uh, and uh, in that conversation he was like I'm trying to build this really sort of open database um, to power uh, the development of applications kind of the AWS for data yeah because he felt a lot of applications were missing 
uh, the access to the right data to be able to build interesting, like whether it's a hotel app or restaurant app, they couldn't get a list of hotels easily. Um, uh, or if you're building an ed tech app, getting a list of schools. Um, so he was like, this is a big idea, Eva, you should come work with me. And I said, of course, I'll do anything for you, Gil. <laughs> so I went not knowing it was going to be like a six year journey <laughs> with him. And, um, it was different this time around because we had success from the Apply Semantics. We had some street cred. Um, so we were able to raise money from people like A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz, and get Ben Horowitz on the board. So it was a very different experience at that point. Did it feel more grown up? Because like I could imagine on the first go around, you know, kind of going into this nonchalant startup-y environment, but now having sold that company, worked at Google, did it feel like there was more like execs at the table at the second company or what was it about Gil um, or, you know, that kind of made you want to be fully, you know, a part of this new journey? I really thought the vision was a really big vision. And, to, and today I still think it's a really big vision. Um, and Gil is one of those special people that if he asks you to work on something, you should definitely think hard about it. So it was a combination again of people and the team that he had gathered. It wasn't just Gil. There was already a, an existing team of, I believe, like 10 folks, mostly engineers working on this. Um, so is the compelling vision, the team, uh, and we felt that we could actually, you know, successfully raise money to be able to pursue this vision. Yeah, it definitely felt a lot different than apply semantics. Um, but with it came a lot more pressure because mm. certainly now you're playing in a different sort of level, a different you know game. Um, and uh, I think all of us felt, even though we've done it one time before, um, it was not necessarily easy. Um, and we raised a 25 million series a, which is very big for LA Huge. back then. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and we were just a bunch of technical folks. So it was also strange. We were one of the early super technical companies in Los Angeles with like lots of data science. And this is the early days, APIs, data science. Oh, not, yeah. It's not the common sort of vernacular for today, but back then it was all new. Um, so I felt like that was very exciting to be able to build that talent base in Los Angeles and prove that we could, um, yeah, so I was there for about six years, and I think they ended up having a team of 200 really of the top uh, engineers and data people uh, in the world. Around, I believe, 2013 is is when you started to move into angel investing. And I know, you know, inevitably you ended up joining uh, the SUSE team or at least being a part of founding that uh, the, the SUSE team. That's right. What was sort of the thoughts around angel investing? Because, you know, this is one of my – uh, favorite parts about the Vitalized Venture podcast you were recently on where you were talking about having to change your mentality from, you know, growing up, you know, with very harsh economic resources to now you're investing your own money into startups. What was that transition like for you going from, you know, someone working in the trenches to then actually, you know, assessing deals? How, how did you navigate kind of going from an operator, businesswoman to now like actually putting money into companies that you believed in? So my entire life, I've always had these moments where certain people entered my life and helped me cross the chasm of something that I probably would have never crossed on my own. Mm. Um, this person was Seth Berman. You know, we were chatting and he said, hey, Eva, like, have you thought about doing some investing? And I'm like, what is, what do you mean? You know, type of thing. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm looking at some of these really interesting deals. I think you could be valuable to these founders. Um, a lot of it were very data-driven um, solutions. Um and so we ended up sort of looking at some stuff together and he's like, Eva, like there's some really interesting, you should put some money into a couple of these. And I'm like, okay, what do you mean again? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, for me, like it didn't even hit my thought space. Um, 
And through his encouragement, I put some money um, into a company like Nest and I got very lucky. So angel investing is a very weird muscle because you're doing 25, 50, 100,000, which like you said, you know, in my, you know, days, my younger days, that's crazy amount. That's the full annual income of my, it's even more than my full annual income. This is Mm post-tax, right? So yeah, it took a lot for me to like, you know, finish my signature on the check. Um, but I got lucky in that the first couple investments worked. So for some folks who are angel investing, the hard part is for most people who are angel, it takes a long time. Like you, you'll probably suffer like six, seven losses. And then you might have one company work in mm-hmm. year eight, year nine. And then you really think you're pretty terrible at it. You know, so that's most people experience unless you get very lucky. Angel investing is a very difficult thing to do if you don't do it with you know, a good number of, a good number, a good basket of companies. But I got lucky that the first couple were decent. So I was like, oh, maybe I could do more. So Seth is like, let's do it in a more formal way. Mm-hmm. Uh, come join me to start SUSE. And that's, uh, you know, the beginning of SUSE with the four of us. And now did you formally have to move out of Los Angeles to San Francisco? And did you spend time in SF or did you always spend your time in Los Angeles and, you know, kind of jumped up there every once in a while? No, I was always in LA. Always um, in LA. Yeah. So I was very used to jumping up there for Google when I was at Google. So it's very natural for me. Um, that sort of, I guess, what do you call it? Mobility mm-hmm. <laughs> back and forth is very easy. Um, yeah, the rest of the uh, folks were up, up North. Um, but yeah, it was really neat to start this little fund back then. It wasn't like everyone and their neighbors were starting a fund like it is today. It was still quite like, Oh, we're starting a fund. What is that? Um, and uh, luckily, the f- three people I was starting with, Leo, Chad, and Seth, um, you know, they were smart guys. Um, and we were able to do it in a way that was, was somewhat institutional, almost slightly accidentally. <laughs> so, but it was a good experience. I feel like you keep, you know, finding yourself in these companies with such small teams that, you know, are really just figuring out what is it about the early stages or the earliest parts of the company that gets you so excited? you know, probably similar to why you started Coefficient. Um, there's something that you're like gravitating towards that makes you wake up because you're learning a lot, um, you're being challenged, and you're surrounded by folks that are allowing you to grow. That's what I felt with SUSE. I was like, I don't know anything about investing, truly. You know, I mean, yes, I took money from Andreessen, but I don't I have no idea what Andreessen, how Andreessen operates, what the word LPs, like all these new things. Um, so I was like, it's kind of like doing a startup, you know, with SUSE, but with very different mechanics. For and sure. for me, it was like, I've done startups. Now I'm moving on to something, the evolution of that. Um, and it was amazing learning because every day I was like, oh, what's that? What's an LPA? What are those terms? What's pro rata? Um, and in three years, I learned a ton um, in, while I was there. So that's what I'm always leaning towards is a place where I can continue to learn, continue to push, my, push myself um, and Susa gave me that opportunity. Yeah, as you were saying it, I was thinking about how like you can almost like bridge between like the earliest days of you growing up on the farm and like you're not getting that feedback in that environment. There's nothing to learn because you're so disconnected. And so to be in this environment where like every day you get to try something new, you get to learn something new, it like creates this almost like excitement and this, you know, almost like call to adventure um, just by going to work because where you came from was so like, unable to find that adventure. And it's really cool to see like how you've navigated that and gotten to where you are now. Yeah. It's a, the call to adventure is a great 
couple of words. I think my dad would be the embodiment of that because he moved to Africa when he was just a kid. He was 13 and he taught himself how to fly a plane. He taught himself Portuguese. <laughs> he taught himself Swahili. He taught himself how to su- not only survive, but really enjoy being in Mozambique as a Chinese man. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of his genetics is in me. And I think I've always grown wanting to take more risks and natural and leaning into that place of a bit of uncomfort. Um, I think other folks have more trouble with that, but I like diving in. Um, and I'm lucky that, you know, I've, I've dove into pools with other folks who were there to support me. So I never felt it was that risky. Yeah. I'm like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I could start this fun. I learn I'm not very good at it. <laughs> and then I could go do something different as I'm working with some of these young folks who are coming out of a uh, high school, et cetera. Is if you do the right pieces in life and you really lean into excellence in whatever you choose to do and with the right attitude, you probably never have to look for a job. And I'm one of the lucky souls in the world. I've never have to look, I never have, after apply semantics, all these things just found me. Factual found me, Navigating Cancer found me, Sousa found me, and Fika found me finally. That's incredible. Now, now coming back to Fika, what was the transition from Sousa to Fika? Why, what, you know, why stop one to start something new? Um, is it just something that you've always wanted to to do and, you know, to bring it back to LA? And what was kind of the, the origin story of moving into Fika Ventures? The crux of it was I wanted to bring it back to LA. Mm-hmm. Like, even though the other three partners at SUSE respected my desire to invest and commit to Los Angeles, it was still hard, you know, because oh, they, yeah. they were, they're not from here. And we were looking at lots of stuff, uh, many different types of products, including consumer and enterprise. And there are products that we were looking at that I just wasn't very good at and wasn't really passionate about, even though they were good business, good businesses. And I was like, well, how can I refine this if I want to do this for a longer stint? Because I saw Sousa, I didn't know a fund was going to last 10 years. (laughs) You know, when I signed those, you know, thick documents. Yeah, (laughs) you know, back then there wasn't a lot of um, YouTube videos on what it was to start. Like today, yeah, there's a both lot. Both sides of the table. Yeah. That wasn't there. <laughs> that wasn't there. Fred Wilson, all the stuff that we're now young managers can read, what it, what it really means to commit to a starting a fund, whether it's 5 million or 50 million or 500 million. You're committing for a really long time. Um, so I think when that hit me, I'm like, oh, wow, this is a, if I want to do this, I really have to think through what that platform mm-hmm. should look like and what I really want to bet on and the type of people I want to bet on. So I just refined it a bit. And came back to LA, found a partner here in TX, um, and have been just, you know, really enjoying watching the LA ecosystem continue to grow, um, and as well as just really embrace uh, B2B software, which wasn't the case about 10 years ago. I'm, I've always wondered, what does Fika mean? Or what does Fika mean to you? Is it a name that, you know, you and TX just came up with? Or does it have some meaning that, you know, has a story behind it? Yeah, naming is such a funky thing, <laughs> Sean. Uh, You're like, I wish it was, first, yeah, branding I, and naming second. Yeah, I wish it was some magical story. But Suso is also something that we dreamt up. And I think if, you know, I don't know, seven, how long, nine, 10 years when we came up with that, uh, people have been like, that's a weird ass name, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but Sousa has done a great job building um, and enhancing that brand. And Fika was similar tenant where we were looking for something short and something mm-hmm. that represented what we did, you know, a lot every day. And it's a Swedish tradition where people gather together and eat, typically in the afternoons for conversation, for a cup of coffee, so is it, it's a Swedish term. Fika? It's a Swedish term. Ah, yeah. So there's a story yeah, there. There's there a story there. Come yeah. On. I, I think it's called a domain name story. <laughs> uh, 
yeah. So I think, you know, it works because that's what we do all day long is hang out with, you know, creative people and um, riff on interesting things that we want to work on. So did it feel like you were starting not from scratch per se, but like, you know, moving into Susa where you had kind of some partners there, it's, it's almost like you're like, you've always tacked onto the core team. Whereas Fika, you coming in and working with your, you know, your new partner, did it feel like a new chapter or something that was very different or was it kind of picking up from where you left off at Susa? It felt like a new chapter. Um, and here's the reason why, um, because of the transition from Susa, I had to really develop a new LP for the folks listening to limited partner database yeah. um, to get funding from. And when I looked out there, I didn't have any contacts. I mean, the folks at SUSE had a lot of good contacts. You know, they grew up differently. Um, there are a lot more relationships. They're from the Valley. So I literally started with a blank slate. Um, and I also wasn't able to tap SUSE LPs um, based on the contract. So TX and I were like, okay, like where do we get started? So we s- called 600 people. Wow. Um, eventually some small subset converted to do our first $41 million fund, but it was hard, Sean. So a lot of people are like, man, Eva, you made it seem so easy. Like just $41 million fell out of the sky. I was like, <laughs> no, it did not. <laughs> um, so I think it's positive news for people who are raising funds now. It's supposed to be hard, right? Like why should anybody give you 40 million bucks to manage? You know, what does that even mean? You know, and so I think TX and I were always very humble by the process um, and when people said no, we're like, okay, or not now. We're like, okay, I get it. You know, we have much, we still have stuff to prove. And I think with that attitude, it always felt like we were learning through the process ver- versus the process sort of owning us. Yeah. Do you remember who your first investment was and what that experience was like after you made your first like official investment into a company? Yeah. Our first investment didn't turn out so great. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it was a small check, luckily. Um, but some of the investments following, I mean, we had 30 companies. It, it was different. It was like TX, myself writing, you know, and we were, TX also grew up um, in a, you know, environment where he didn't have a lot of money at all. And from Singapore, he has a, also a wonderful story where he came to the U.S. only based on scholarship, um, you know, ended up looking after. So we have a lot of the same uh-huh. sort of background where. Back against the wall. Yeah, like, totally. like we Chip have on to the figure shoulder. this yeah. out. Yeah. We have to. And. There was no sort of second option, right? It's not like we were going to, you know, we had to make this work. Um, and so I think with that mentality, the, when we wrote a check, it felt very different than when I was at Seuss. I was like, oh, my God, like we're writing our first $250,000 check. Like, yeah. You know, and and we also always, and not to say the Seussa team did not, because I, I, know, I, know, I know they do, but I really do think about the LP set. And today we have LPs at our hospitals, at our foundations. You know, I don't want to lose their money. We don't want to lose their money. And I wake up every day knowing that's a massive responsibility, the mm-hmm. amount of money that we're managing, and the people on the other end that will be the recipients if we do well. Um, and that's a great motivator. So I'm very grateful for the LPs we have today. And we now have more choice of who we let in. Um, and that's, you know, I never thought about that when we were, when I started investing, yeah. how this part of the equation matters more than I thought it would. Oh, I mean, that's been, I've said it on multiple podcasts where, I, when I first started interviewing VCs, my mind was like, Eva just has a ton of money and she's always had a ton of money. And I didn't realize that VCs actually have to go and raise money from other LPs, which is kind of, you know, leads into the next, you know, kind of question that I have for you where 
if people listening to you you know, are hearing your story. It's like you were so nervous at your first consulting jobs and like doing that sort of work. You had like imposter syndrome, you know, you were quiet, all of these things stacked against you, introverted, yet now you're on like the front lines, raising millions of dollars, like standing up for yourself, bringing in money. How did you get to that place for people listening that are like, I'm too shy to be an investor. I'm too shy to go and raise money. What did you have to change about your mentality that enables you to like, you know, break out of that shell and now, you know, essentially be responsible for pitching or, you know, getting other VCs to invest in you? How have you had to navigate or shift the way in which you conduct yourself? I think I'm a good example of someone that if I can make it, anyone out there listening can make it. Um, but it will take a shitload of work. Um you know, I've worked hard my entire life. Like I get up at five and I'm like working till 11. Um, you know, I have dinner, I have family, I have my husband who always complains I work too hard, but whatever I do, I'm like ultra committed to doing the best. I won't take on something, whether it's a podcast or whatever, I'm not going to do half-ass mm -hmm. on anything. And I think people know that. So I think along the way, they always wanted me to be on their team. And that's the lesson I tell young folks is like, you don't have to be the brightest person because I certainly wasn't. I didn't have the highest test scores. I wasn't the most polished person. Um, I may not always have looked the part, um, but at the end of the day, I wanted it more badly than anybody else. Yeah. And I was not going to lose. Um, so I think that's the part people, and, and I have lost, but they know I'm going to come in with that attitude that I'm going to give it my all. Um, and for me, that's basically like 99% of the battle is if you want it and you're going to persist and you do it with a small element of humility that you have to earn your way. Like when we were raising these funds, like I never felt we deserved anything. I had to fight for every LP and as we should. And I think T when there are bad days where we would get three no's and I'm like, well, TX, like, we still have a lot to prove. Like, let's buckle up. And, and there are days where I'm like sadder than he is or vice versa. We kind of, you know, help held each other up through the tough times. Um, because we looked at other people out there that were like 25-year-old folks that are raising like super large funds, you know, and we're like, well, what's wrong with us? Like, those folks are doing it. But I think if you look at the glass sort of half full most yeah. of the time, you will get through it and you'll get to the other side. And people who are there who want to support you will recognize that. And they do, the LPs do want to back sort of very wholehearted, committed individuals. And they can see beyond, you know, some of the sort of shinier things. When you think about your partnership with TX, what makes you smile about it? Like what brings you to life about the way you guys have, you know, jammed together and continue to build together? Why do you think you guys mesh so well in, you know, building FICO over the last, you know, six plus years? It's a relationship. Mm. It's a real genuine relationship like any relationship, it's imperfect. Um, and we learned a lot about each other through the years. And, you know, I think when we started out, I knew I liked him as a person. I knew we had similar values, but I'm like, well, I haven't worked with him in the trenches, like where we're making yeah. big decisions together, where there's a lot of money at stake. Um, so I truly didn't know, no. Of course, with the LPs, we're like, we know, but we didn't really know. Yeah. Um, and I've worked with great people before, right? So my bar was like super high on, who I wanted to spend time with and who I was going to learn with. And I think for me, TX, what makes me smile is if I put in, you know, one ounce of effort, he's going to put in two ounce. Wow. Like I wake up knowing that he's all in. Wow. <laughs> like TX, like if you, you know, often I think about it, I was like, 
I wouldn't want to compete against TX because the guy is, you <laughs> unrelenting. know. Unrelenting. Unrelenting. Wow. Um, and hard charging, um, but always open to listening, learning, um, always wanting to grow as a person. Um, so we have a very open, wonderful relationship. We're almost like brother and sister type. Because yeah. there are times where we had to debate certain things or we disagreed on certain things. And I was like, okay, let's duke it out. And uh, and we would sit down. I'd and yeah, punch. Exactly. And we would sit down and I was just like, what matters to you? And, you know, and I think we really understand. And this is, I think, where partnerships are made. And now the partnership's bigger. We added John. We have now a team of nine is really taking the time to understand what matters to your other team members, whether they're a partner or not, right? Like really taking the time to listen and say, oh, I didn't know that matters to you and that matters to you. Um, I think when I joined up with TX, I said, hey, like, you know, community work is really matters to me. So like I got to find time either threaded through FICA or on my own to do the stuff I want to do for the LA community. And mm. luckily we've been able to thread a lot of the pieces together. So it's very synergistic. Um, but I said, that's what I care about. Like I'm not going to be a pure finance person that's looking at, you know, returns every day and checking my balance sheet. Like, you know, I do that because I want to be a successful fund. Yeah. But at the heart of it, I also have other purpose sort of things I want to accomplish in this world, things I wanted to accomplish for Los Angeles. And he's like, I like that. Let's do it. So, but we have to remind ourselves because yeah. we are different people. That was actually a question I had around what do these community driven work, what do these nonprofits bring to you in your life? Why, you know, to your point, like there's so many VCs, I'm sorry, there's so many portfolio companies, there's so many deals to look at. Like you could spend all of your time looking at deals, talking to your portfolio. Why is it important for you to find this pocket outside, even doing things like, navigating cancer where it's not even directly related to you know your own family and upbringing so why is the community side the nonprofit what what brings you energy in that world when you're in a city as big as LA um i think it's easy to lose sight because we all live in nice neighborhoods we both you and i live on the west side um it's hard it's easy to forget mm. that a large portion of Angelinos don't live the way you and I live. They don't have access to very basic things. It could be broadband. It could be uh, healthcare. It could be education, um, a home. Um, LA has a lot of different types of people that are struggling. And I think through my exposure of being in this wonderful, large, complex city, uh, I can't wake up and do what I do without realizing what more I can do to assist other people to reach a equitable state. Um, and that's always been my feeling because that's where I came from. Like if, if somebody didn't pull me up and say, Hey Eva, it's okay. Like, you know, you don't have all these things, but I'm still going to bet on you. Um, I wouldn't be here. You know, I had all these people along the way. Some people I don't probably don't even remember teachers. I was in such a fog growing up, but I know I couldn't be here without, you know, the educational system betting on me. Right. Um, lots of folks along employers, you know, friends, family. So when I look at folks who don't have that support system, mm. a little bit of a nudge will help so much. And so I felt like this for many, many years. I always wanted, I was like, when I get there, there is a yeah, yeah. amorphous place. And it started right after I think my time leaving Google, because I was just like, how did I get here? Why do I, why did I get chosen to be here? Why me? I was wearing my little Google Timbuktu bag. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's so many people that were given their left leg to be part of that early stro story of that company. Um, and with that, it opened so many doors. And I think I'd never wake up forgetting, you know, the good fortune I landed into. 
and I would like to share it. Um, and I think it's been wonderful that, thank God, my teammates feel very similar. Um, there's a common thread amongst the work that we do, not only in the community with through nonprofit, but in the investments that we make. You'll see there's a common sort of organic thread of investing in diverse people, investing in solutions that affect the mainstream and the broader society, not the 1%. Like, we really live it. Um, yeah. And I'm lucky because it makes me, you know, it drives me to work the way we work. Um, so, yeah. So I think there's real meaning behind is dollars to be made, but behind that screen, there's just a whole lot of layer of purpose and mission. You're so aware of how important it was for you that it's awesome that you're able to be that person to others that are going through things similar. It's a super gift, Sean. Yeah. I can't tell you. It's easy to write a check to a nonprofit. In some ways, that's easy. Um, but to really develop programming and really touch individuals um, and really know their story and be part of their life is a really different feeling. And it's probably the greatest gift that I get is working with young folks um, and knowing that our fund can do more yeah. because we've been given this privileged platform that we're sitting on. We're like sitting, we're in the ivory tower now. Um, and it would be a shame to be here and not recognize the additional things and benefits that we can bring to the broader society. It's so cool. So Eva, tell me a bit more about, you know, the types of companies you've alluded a little bit towards like B2B and data and like, is there a thematic approach, you know, outside of the community and nonprofits? Like, do you invest in the same types of startups? Um, you know, I know most of your startups are at the earlier stage, but maybe you could talk just a bit more about the fund itself, um, the types of companies you invest in, et cetera. Yeah. So the um, areas that we've focused on over the last, I guess, five, six years has been B2B software, the umbrella of enterprise software, which okay. now encompasses lots of things. <laughs> yeah. um, it encompasses developer tools, um, elements of cybersecurity, lots of things. Um, and alongside that, we also do fintech, a lot of embedded finance stuff. Um, we also do healthcare, healthcare IT uh, and B2B marketplaces. So we've stayed sort of at the heart of the things that we are good at based on our compounded experience and operational experience um, with the sort of the thread around data that, yeah. you know, sort of the theme that we fell in love with um, Gil and I many years ago. So, so yeah, it's been nice to be able to add on to that. Um, and with that lens, um, the founders underneath that we select for are folks that we feel are driven to solve something from a deeper place in them, not somebody that necessarily went to get an MBA and looked at a quadrant and said, you know, that's going to be the hot trend on the upper right. Um, it's somebody that's motivated by, by something deeper, whether it's their family, a, a problem that they experienced themselves, um, that makes me believe, makes us believe that they're going to want to do this for a long time and will ride the bumps and the waves and will stick with it. Um, and that's psychologically often hard to screen for. Yeah. Uh, but because we bet so early, a majority of it is trying to assess the motivation and the why behind why people want to start something. So knowing that some of the like the green flags or the things you're ex that excite you in investments are around, you know, when you pick and prod, like, are they going to weather those storms and the longevity and, you know, how deep do they feel this problem? Um, if those are the things you look for that get you excited, what are potentially some of the red flags or potentially some of the um, things that you look for in these early meetings? Because I, I feel like at the earliest stage without having lots of data for you to back into, it, it's so much about your feel and what you look for in those early conversations. 
are there any things that you're kind of like very weary of or that you um, would recommend founders be aware of when they're pitching VCs like yourself? I would say the couple of things is just authenticity mm. and honesty, um, both in the way you present yourself, the story that you tell, um, and the pitch itself. Like if you're pitching me why you want to do something and you're backing it with numbers, like making sure all that is as factual as it can be. Um, yes, you can be aspirational, but there are times if there's any sort of inkling of untruth, uh, it's such a, for me, such a stopper. <laughs> Suddenly I'm like, oh my God, like I can't believe that they, you know, you know, misrepresented their background, mm -hmm. mis misrepresented how they calculated revenues. Um, and I also just, I think we just, as a group, we just don't like pomp. Mm -hmm. um, we don't like the hype of it all. So I think coming in in a very sort of large fashion where you're exaggerating things, exaggerating traction, um, is would be very difficult for us to back someone like that. Um, we want down to earth folks that are committed to solving something and that we would enjoy being around. Um, and I think some of the personalities that are created by all the capital in the tech ecosystem, it creates a certain- Bake it till you make it yeah, type of a- totally. Uh-huh. Totally. I should have asked this a, a couple minutes ago, but I'm just curious, um, having been in the VC ecosystem now for 10 years, you've seen a lot change amongst like consumer apps, you know, Instagram, Facebook, all of the companies that are more B2C players. Is there a reason that that didn't like- excite you or, you know, I could imagine that when you're talking about these very like enterprise B2B software companies, it's a much different vibe and feel than the, you know, up and coming, you know, Snapchats of the world. Is there a reason that you've stayed in that lane and, you know, kind of looking back on it now, would you have done things exactly the same way if you started from the very beginning again? I like lots of things as an individual, as a user. I mean, Google is a B2C company. Um, I like Snap. I use all those tools, Facebook, like all those wonderful consumer apps that I can't live without that's on my phone. Love them. Um, but I'm honest with myself in terms of what we can actually do to support these founders post-investment. And so that was one of the big lenses is how can we actually be helpful to them beyond the check? Mm. Um, and I think our training for our entire team is really better at supporting B2B and I would argue that B2B is actually today extremely sexy because it touches everything that we do um, and it lubricates basically lots of stuff in our lives, whether it's a lot of the new cloud technologies or lots of these AI things in the future that's going to help you and, you know, cure disease and all these things. That's sexy. Yeah, You know, as sure. sexy as Instagram. Um, <laughs> or toothbrushes yeah, or razors. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, and nothing against those, you know, I think they're just better investors for those. Um, yeah. And I'm grateful a lot of them live in Los Angeles. And now when it comes to the check size, I know that, you know, back five, six, eight years ago, seed stage and series A investment sizes were much different than they are today. What's a typical investment for Fika? And, you know, if I'm a startup at the early stage, what should I expect uh, when coming to the table? Our check sizes now are one to three million and they've crept up a bit. Um, I'm sure, I mean, you, I saw your podcast and listened to, I think with the valuation creeping up, um, we just had to write slightly bigger checks mm -hmm. to ensure the ownership that we like around 10, 12%. Mm -hmm. But we've earned our way sort of into that spot. Okay. When we started Fika 1, we were um, really aiming for more like a 7% ownership um, and really had to 
prove our value with founders. Like we could say we're valuable yeah. and useful, but until founders say it for you, it's pretty meaningless. Mm -hmm. um, so we spent fun one sort of working and seeing whether our service actually resonated with founders. And luckily it, it seems to have worked. Um, so now we're, you know, basically taking larger positions on a cap table, more board seats um, in, in building a larger team to support, um, you know, support these investments. Eva, I always ask, what are you most excited about right now? Uh, it could be family, it could be personal, it could be business, but, um, you know, we're now in March 2022. Uh, what are you most excited about? I'm excited to see sort of how the world is going to evolve post-pandemic. Mm. It's a grand experiment. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how some of the norms will have changed um, and I'm excited to see what are some of the positive things that could come out of seemingly a very dark period. Um, I think some of the positive trends that we've been noticing is just a dig digitization of lots of things. So I hope that some of the things that have happened in education, in healthcare, in manufacturing will stick. Mm. And for me, the future, if I can see some of these things improve, it would be huge for us. Um, and if it took a pandemic to get us here, and it took a pandemic to unearth a lot of the inequities in, in our society, I hope people are awakened to some of the broader needs um, and that we are going to be more driven to fix this. So I feel like our conversations, my conversations with my peers, with the founders have changed. I feel people are like, okay, there are bigger things in the world than making pretty pictures or whatever. Like, there are bigger things that we may want to solve. Yeah. And to me, that as an optimist, I'm not always an optimist. <laughs> um, I, I'm hoping that's going to. So I've just been very excited. I, you know, we did our first like at tech investment. Um, we're doing more stuff and we're stepping deeper. Even though I came from healthcare, I recognize like the, the challenges of investing in healthcare. Um, but we're doing more because I'm like, well, if we don't do it, who will? Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. We did a recent deal called Hey Renee uh, with Quiet Capital and Tao and, and Mucker, actually. Yeah. So I think that's the stuff that's exciting me is like what's around the corner. And as technologies like AI, ML really find their home and find their usefulness, um, there's big things around the corner, I'm hopeful. Eva, you are incredibly inspiring. Uh, I think the LA ecosystem is so lucky to have you and people like yourself that are investing so much and helping. And um, it makes me want to do more myself. So I just want to say thank you for coming on the Demo Day podcast. We really appreciate you. And uh, it's been really nice to get to know you more. And I hope we have a chance to do this many more times in the future. It's been a, such an honor, uh, Sean, to be here with you. You're one of my favorite people in the LA <laughs> ecosystem. And I very much look forward to doing more with you. And thank you for the conversation. Awesome. Um, everyone listening at home, I'm Sean Goldfaden from Coefficient Labs. This is Demo Day. Peace, guys. Yeah.